I'm Aaron Armstrong. I'm Pete Moran. I'm Rick Kelly. And we love to watch. We love to watch things. This movie's kind of like Meet the Parents, but just for realtors. The silence with doors open wide. Where people get paid to see inside. For entertainment, they watch his body twist. Behind his eyes, he says, I still exist. This is the way you step inside. Hey guys, Hi. how are you guys doing? <sighs> pretty good, pretty good. Pretty hot in my house right now, but apart from that, I'm doing all right. How are you? Uh, good. Pretty cold in my house, but I mean, we how, we both have different areas of the country to live in climate yeah. wise. So, how's the temperature? In, how's the temperature in your house, Pete? Uh, much weather we're having. Um, <laughs> uh, the room that I'm in is 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 similar to you, Rick. Uh, hmm. It's very warm. Um, and that is because I'm a cheapskate that refuses to turn on my AC. Um, uh, but welcome yeah, back, this is, Rick. This is like, can we cut the, this out already? Like, can we start over? <laughs> <laughs> Great what radio. The, what, like, not only is, like, weather the dumbest thing you can talk about on, like, a, a, a conference call that just disappears yeah. into the ether. Yeah. We're doing it on a podcast that's going to come out in late August. <laughs> like, I can't think of anything. It's not even relevant to right. tonight. Yeah. Less yeah, yeah. interesting. Uh, yeah. Well, I'll tell you what. Don't adjust your podcast. Uh, this is not a repeat. It may sound like a repeat, but it's not a repeat of We Love to Watch, the movie podcast where we pick a theme. We do movies over the course of that month around that theme. And this week or this month, it's a double month. That we're almost uh, done with. We've done six Scream makes so far, which are remakes of horror movies. And thus, you scream because horror movies are traditionally scary. In this case... Wait, hold on. Real quickly. Like, can we pause here? We're, we're almost at the end of our Scream makes. And that means we're not going to be able to say Scream makes every week after this. That's you, sad. Yeah, you always think you're going to keep saying it like how we thought we never would let the Slugfest voices die. And we did pretty quickly because uh, those yeah. voices suck. Yeah, it's like it's like uh, the friends you meet the first week of college. You're like, oh my god, finally, people who understand me. And then six months later, you're like, I, I want to eat alone. <laughs> And we're doing we're doing Nosferatu, the Vampire, uh, directed by Werner Herzog, the remake from 1979, starring Klaus Kinski. And while we said this may seem like a repeat, we not only have done Nosferatu uh, in our in our less than a in our eleventh month of existence uh, in our first wow. year of the podcast. I know to twenty early twenty seventeen, uh, but we did it with our guest here, Rick Kelly, who at the time was making his third appearance. And I believe this is your fourth now. <laughs> Sounds right. <laughs> uh, Rick, you haven't been on in a while. Why don't you say hi to our audience? Hey, what's going on? Great. Anything Perfect. else about yourself you'd like to share? Oh, no. Okay. Uh, if you'd like to hear way more about Rick, listen to old episodes of Rick. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I'll say, um, so, you know, I got to know you guys through The Dissolve and through doing movie writing. A lot of which I don't do right now because I'm helping to 
raise a little baby out here and focusing on family and the rest of that sort of stuff. And uh, now you write for focus on the family. Now I write for focus on the family. <laughs> Never let your family believe, out of your sight. I can't sight. believe I just said, yeah, I just said focus on the family. That's amazing. <laughs> um, I also, I also use that phrase, and then I, and then I'm like, wait, hold on, <laughs> hold on, hold on. Right. Where's that from? Where's so, that from? Yeah, everyone, hold on. I need to, I need to write down. <laughs> <laughs> need to write down never say focus on the family again put that in my notes <laughs> it's like when you eat a piece of food and you're like wait how long was that thai food <laughs> yeah <laughs> it doesn't feel right so yeah let a robot care tending for a child yeah in the german parlance mm-hmm. and uh i used to write on luddite maybe i will again one day and uh yeah fingers crossed that's, that's what i do I'm glad the one movie thing you haven't cut out of your diet is being on this podcast with us. Yeah, basically. It's true. Because um, this is, we're doing uh, Nosferatu, directed by Werner Herzog. Uh, somehow the first Werner Herzog movie that we've done, uh, even though we've definitely pulled out some very bad impressions of him uh, in the past. And maybe this is the point in the podcast that I do not understand what Aaron is talking about he begins to ramble and rave. This is it's way more Schwarzenegger. You gotta you gotta work. We got a whole podcast. You'll get it, Peter. Yeah. Yeah. Now do a Kinski impression. <laughs> okay. <laughs> that we don't have to edit out. <laughs> he's just he's just screaming about how he's Jesus Christ in German. That's oh mostly my, my Kinski. Impression. Should we let's uh so yeah, this so this movie is a remake. You it was, it was Herzog's <laughs> Herzog considered Nosferatu, the original, the best uh, German movie of all time. Uh, it is kind of weird that he, like, remade a movie, uh, or at least a horror movie. It feels as – now it feels, like, more on point. But at the time, I think in his in his revoir, it feels a little off. Although when you do have someone that, like, well, what <laughs> – he looks exactly like Max Shrek. Where else are we going to get that? Uh, well, <clears throat> I got some things to say about that, but I'll wait till we get into it. Yeah, so I think before because this is, I, I think both of us are probably big Herzog fans in general. Um, Peter and I both watched uh, My Best Fiend for the first time, and Rick, I believe you've seen My Best Fiend. It might be worth talking a little bit about both, you know, a little primer on Herzog as a whole, what he means to us, and then um, and then a little bit about his working relationship with Klaus Kinski. I will say the funniest thing about My Best Fiend to me, and this also serves as an introduction to, to Herzog, so I uh, I hadn't seen – I had to acquire Wrath of God on my list forever from being like someone who like was obsessively writing down Roger Ebert great films and stuff like that. But I hadn't got to it when Grizzly Man came out in 2005 when I was about 22. You know, watched Grizzly Man and was blown away by it. still one of my – maybe my favorite documentary of all time. I've, I've seen it so many times. Uh, and I was like, yeah, Grizzly Man is one of those movies that's about a weirdo. And then you realize by the end of it, you're like, oh, no, this is about everything. This is about existence. This is about our relationship with nature. This is about, uh, what it's like to go through a redemption arc. Like, can you have a redemption arc? Like, yeah, Grizzly Man is probably my favorite. Life is both beautiful, but a huge waste of time. Like, (laughs) like it's, yeah, it's, it's so, so goddamn good. So I was like, fuck. I need to I need to get into my Herzog stuff. And around that same time, too, AV Club, when they used to uh, publish worthwhile writing, had, was I think they did a primer, one of my favorite series they used to do, about, like, take a director, we're going to talk about all their work, and at the end, name Essentials. 
Uh, or like break them into categories of like, here's the top five, here's the essentials, here's some things that are worth, you know, ke- checking out. These are ultimately yeah. misses. Lo- I think they did something like that in Herzog around the same time. So I had a really good like list to jot down and add to various lists and Netflix queues. So the, uh, the reason I'm mentioning this is that I wrote down my best fiend as my best friend. Then had trouble finding it when I was looking at Netflix and a lot of other things. And it wasn't until like a year later that I finally realized it was My Best Fiend. And is, there, the retro- is there actually a My Best Friend that you watched? That No, that no. Was- like no, I just okay. couldn't find it. I'm like, okay, maybe I have this down wrong. And I, I don't remember how much. But in the- you're like, wow, when does this golden retriever turn into Klaus Kinski? <laughs> like Klaus Kinski looks great in this movie. Adorable. <laughs> He can really catch a fucking frisbee. I mean, at the time, I didn't know anything about Kinski because this was Grizzly Man was the first Herzog, and like I had, I just hadn't really got there. So I didn't. That's why, in general, that's why I find it so funny that a that Herzog, who I didn't know that well when I wrote this down, would have made a movie called My Best Friend, which yeah, is just very sure. funny to me, and also that that movie would have been about Klaus Kinski. <laughs> <laughs> like in retrospect, like it obviously wouldn't have been. My best friend, <laughs> but uh, but yeah, I just assumed, yeah, why would he make a documentary about his acting buddy called My Best Fiend? Makes no sense, <laughs> In but order yeah, to discover my best friend, the journey must begin with my MySpace top eight. <laughs> uh, <laughs> at first, Tom could be easily eliminated. I'm gonna save the Herzog impression until I uh. Have- Talk about my best fiend when he just walks up to people that lived in various places and is like, I'm going to tell you a story of when <laughs> your bathroom that you used to go poop and pee pee, uh, <laughs> there was a madman yelling and screaming for days <laughs> in your bathroom. <laughs> Take me around to your dining room. Uh, there's more stories of the madman who lived in your house. Yeah, we'll get there. Yeah. Uh, so, uh, so Rick, Peter, Grizzly Man was my first exposure. Uh, what What was your general uh, first first dip into Herzog, and um, and then yeah, let's start there. We can talk about how we feel about him today and everything else. Um, I am actually not sure what the first Herzog I saw was, but I think it probably was Nosferatu. Um, I had this huh. on VHS, and I watched the hell out of it without really knowing anything about. Um, the new German cinema about Herzog. I don't even know if I'd seen Nosferatu. I think I might've seen this before I saw the Murno when I was in like eighth grade or something. I'm not sure how this happened, but uh, we watched it a lot um, and I really loved it. I still love it. And I ended up watching tons of Herzog. Uh, He was like a really played a really central, had a central place in sort of the pantheon of directors for me when I was um, younger. And I think I got a little, okay. So I think, one thing I will throw out at the front end, I think that Herzog's been sort of stereotyped, like the voices that we're going uh, to do <laughs> to the to the point where he's like kind of like a joke a little bit to a lot of people, um, or at least a punchline, because he says, you know, his standard like gloomy uh, German things in his particular voice. And he's like has this this fixture there. And he's also known for his uh, sort of bravado and machismo uh auteurist thing like he famously i guess on uh even dwarves started small i think like dove into a cactus patch to prove to everyone that he was not afraid to do whatever and then there's the whole fitzcarraldo thing and uh 
he's very much like this this kind of like mus- this notion of muscular filmmaking that I think I got a little tired of um, somewhere <laughs> yeah, along the way. But I really uh, I really adore this movie. This is a keeper for me. In fact, I mean, he makes when I think of Herzog, I think of these like images. He constructs these unforgettable images for me more than anything else and uh a lot of that's never left me so i'm I'm still a huge fan and especially of this movie even if i kind of uh i burned out a little on the sort of aura that surrounds him that's yeah that's really interesting really quick before um before peter talks about his history i just i guess i've never and maybe it's because i came to him so late like i think by the time grizzly man came out i think a lot of people that knew where Herzog was or were like an early film lover had probably been exposed to Herzog quite a bit like and and he had at that point I mean obviously he has a 25 year plus reputation as like a filmmaker so coming to him only in um retrospect for some of the those more like macho pictures and then kind of hearing him and seeing him as an as an older man maybe with a little bit less that bravado I guess I've never like I I get that those stories are theoretically macho and I could definitely see a lot of the worst people uh identifying with like yeah that's how you do it you point a gun at someone and yell action i guess it, in just in my perspective of him, of him has always been someone who has a like a very definitive perspective like it, it feels like something that is very specific to him and is one that he is not he's not an asshole about i guess would be the way to say. like he's not someone who's like everyone else is wrong he just alt- he he listens to other pers- perspective but he just is so like singularly focused that even though he recognizes other thing- things exist that he like he he is committed to his perspective and not in a i'm right in their wrong way but in a this is this is what i'm doing I am I am almost a like um, a uh, uh, a force as opposed to like a person. Like I hear what everyone's saying. This is what I'm going to do. And 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 I feel like anything that's in that way, it's not a question of machismo or this idea of like masculinity. It's a question of him being just a deeply weird individual <laughs> who is ever he's he's somewhat tunnel vision about everything. Right. So I I I kind of disagree. Uh, I'm I'm kind of more on Rick's side at this the thing, but I'll talk about my history with Herzog first, and, and we'll get there. Um, I uh, saw my brother showed me Grizzly Man uh, whenever it first came out on DVD. I wanted to see it in theaters, but it was one of those things where I was like, you know, in the suburbs, and so uh, I had to wait for DVD because I was like, oh, I want to see this like weird movie about a guy who lives with bears, and like you know, it was the age of the internet. I I could find out what happened. And your brother uh, was like, of, you know, not in the city. You can't watch it. <laughs> I mean, he would have taken me. That's to where the, the bears are, movie. Peter. It's like he he took me he took me into the city to see like some like Inland Empire and a couple other movies when I was in junior high, which was like a very very cool older brother move. But this, I think I was a little like, uh, yeah, this I was a little maybe young for him to do this for for that. Anyways, not that interesting. Anyways, my point is, I saw Grizzly Man uh, when uh, about when it came out on DVD. Um, Kind of changed my whole perspective on film. Uh, definitely a movie that uh, changed my entire sp- perspective on what documentary film could be. The the process in throughout that he follows throughout that film, where it starts off sort of as like a morbid journey, and then as time goes on, like not not even as time goes on, as as he starts to gain more of a sense of uh, 
power over the proceedings and he starts to be more intimately involved in the participants. The moment where he, he recommends to the survivor, uh, don't watch this tape, destroy it. If it's in your, if it's under your bed, it will haunt you. You'll eventually watch it. You'll eventually listen to it. Like I, I implore you to get rid of it. I don't want it in my film. Like that moment informed, not just introduced me to Herzog as like a man of integrity, but it also like sent up us. Uh, it, it introduced me to the idea of like that documentary film was not necessarily ever going to be an impartial third party observer. And I know that that's mostly demonstrated in documentaries through editing and, you know, which, which, uh, which shots you end up choosing, uh, and then, uh, narration, but seeing Herzog be such a direct participant completely rattled my perspective on what a documentary could be. Hmm. And to see him be such a gentle, gentle presence of it is very interesting with contrast from this era where I, I, we, we've used a lot of words to describe it. Um, a tourist machismo, wild man, deeply weird man. The way I see it is like, is, is, is basically that he, um, especially after watching, uh, my best fiend is that he was, uh, sort of a part of that new Hollywood age, even though he's from German. He's, he's from Germany. Um, <clears throat> you would hate that notion, but yes, go on. Yeah, <laughs> yes, he's sort of part of that pa- new part of uh, part age. of new burn. Yeah, <laughs> but uh, but that sort of age of filmmakers, where these filmmakers took insane uh, risks with the lives of their filmmakers or with their with their crew, um, and uh, put them put them through uh, and put themselves through to some extent. But you know, I feel less bad for them because it's their fucking production. Um, well, put this crew through uh, great ordeals uh, to get shots um, and risk their lives sometimes to get shots. And, and you know, obviously I'm not comparing him to uh, John Landis in uh, lightly because uh, obviously the John Landis incident turned out very, very differently. Um, as far as we know, uh, Herzog does not have uh, some graves in the Amazon with his name on it. Um but there is, there. I think it's definitely something you need to contend with. And the fact that I was, int- but the fact that I was introduced to Herzog as more of a humbled old man whose eccentricities he could kind of like um, explore, I think, in a, a less egotistical manner, um, made me actually more forgiving of younger Herzog's excess, which I do find rather eye rolling. The way that I think Rick does, like uh, the fact, like uh, the the. the the way that he talks about, like, the indigenous chief, and the, I think it was on the set of Fitzgeraldo, the indigenous chief offered to kill Kinski. Um, and uh, Herzog basically says, like, he admits, like, I, ex- I exploited that to get that sort of that sort of shot ready. He let this guy walk behind Kinski after offering to kill him. Um and uh and 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 film this whole shot. And he talks about openly about how he wanted to murder Kinski. And him in 1999 is a very interesting picture because he at times he seems very uh sober-minded and very um uh what's the term i'm thinking of like uh when you go to confess like confession like he's um he's like getting his sins off his back uh contrition like he's he seems sort of contrite contrite yes so at times he seems sort of contrite about these events um uh, uh, but at other times, like he's giggling uh, with people about fuck how fucking insane Kinski was, and he admits, like he he um, to the press, he would sort of romanticize their conflict, even mm-hmm. though it was like undeniably toxic, and like at times, like they very well could have killed each other or gotten other people killed. 
Um, and, uh, you know, uh, this is an interesting movie because it's, it, it, it is a, both a product of that, but also uh, that relationship. But also, this is not the one where we have uh, countless hours of footage of him raving on set the way we do in Fitzcarraldo and on, um, and on obviously, Aguirre, Wrath of God. Can I, inter- can I interject real quick? Because I think there's, there's a couple points that I just want to make. One of which is that uh, I kind of do think that Herzog is known to have blood on his hands from the productions. Uh, Fitzcarraldo in particular, there were at least two plane crashes associated with the film, bringing stuff in. And uh, I think indigenous, there were several injuries, maybe resulting in death of indigenous uh, crew members. And uh, I, I, don't, I don't think I was aware of that. The, I didn't think I was aware of the latter. And then I didn't know the former had anything to I, I, I just think I just assumed it was a, it was a, a complete accident. Maybe didn't have to do with him. I mean, maybe. But then there's also, I would say, pervasive um, injury to animals. That kind of is a defining characteristic. Yes, yes. Of okay, we, 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 we will get into that. Yeah. I was not I was not taking that lightly, especially <laughs> on this film itself. There was there was pervasive injury to animals. I was more focused on, on yeah. people just for yeah, my yeah, example. Yeah, yeah. Um, but yes, we need to talk about the rats, the monkeys on Aguirre, like all that. Yeah, just throwing it in there. Okay. Yes, yes, yes. Great, great, great qualms because I actually don't know if he has a body count in South America somewhere. Um, but uh, maybe, maybe I did allow myself to get kind of like you know I took my, my best fiend and sort of his sort of uh, accounts of what happened in in certain areas and didn't uh, balance it against uh, more third party accounts. Yeah, and I guess I, I guess that's why I. Um... That, that that I guess my perspective in some way that's the way I see him because I I don't again I don't see him as a as a macho monster who's like I don't care about the lives of X or Y I see him as someone who didn't care about anything that wasn't important to him in the moment which is which is its own kind of monstrosity like you know I'm I'm not I'm not saying that 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 indemnifies him animal harm or anything like that but even when it comes to like uh, Kinski. You know, the one thing that's interesting about Herzog is that, like, those stories where he's, like, actively antagonizing or actively debating whether to murder someone or have other people murder him or putting – I've never heard it from any reading, from documentaries about anyone but Klaus Kinski. Like, like, he definitely put a lot of people in unsafe situations that, again – uh, as we all know from uh, all the jokes we make about Jonathan Landis murdering all those people, that there's that you you own that. That's not something that like whoopsie daisy. I put people in unsafe situations, and some people got there's horribly documented injured. Documented evidence that people warned him not to do this, yeah, and he pushed through because yeah. he was the big tourist but, voice. But it's not like it's. I, I do think there is something different. It's not like a one of those directors that you hear like they were abusive to people on the set. Right. Sure. He was abusive to. He was he was potentially in this this perpetual antagonistic <clears throat> calculating with someone who uh, is I think most of us would agree is the worst monster. It's kind of like a kaiju movie about uh, two people in different different respects. Like sure, Herzog's the King Kong, but King Kong still trampled a lot of buildings. Um, but maybe he's not actively like spraying fire breath on the town uh, as much as because because it is like I mean Klaus Kinsey is like you a, up, to back you up really quickly. Yeah. Uh, Herzog does say on set he's like this was one of the rare um, screaming fits that wasn't p- pointed at me. Yeah, Kins the the, pro- the problem I have sometimes with like 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 actually I don't want to say indicting or blight but like feeling like oh that behavior is on. Un- 
is unacceptable is because like Kinski legitimately, not just from the documentary, like seems like a literal monster that was allowed to walk around and be famous and like he is like maybe one of the most evil human i don't want to say one of the most evil human beings but like definitely like if i believed in the concept of evil uh like as a as some sort of supernatural force he would be my number one example that like demon possession existed maybe like (laughs) like you know so like i don't know like yeah herzog maybe had to sometimes like threatened to kill him which you're right 99.99 percent of the time i'm gonna be against that as an action with kinski i feel like well i'm 50 50 whether that was a problem or not <laughs> but the thing is this is his like whatever fifth movie or whatever yeah. he did i think he did five movies with him i think this is this the fourth or the fifth um, uh nosferatu's the second nosferatu's only the second yeah Oh, I think I have the timeline all fucked in my head. Um, yeah, so it's it goes. So they made Iaguire in seventy two. This doesn't come out till seventy nine. Then right after this, they go and make uh, Wozniak. I think it's pronounced Wozniak. 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 And then they do Fitzcarraldo in eighty two. And the last one they do is in uh, Cobra Verde in eighty seven. Yeah. Right. Okay. So like that 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 is also part of the story. If he was such a fucking monster and he was raving about set and all that like and herzog didn't in some way find something worth exploiting about that situation he didn't find something worth working with yeah he would it would have been uh agire and then nothing well i mean i think there's on some level it's um very clearly performative there the <laughs> yes uh yeah. aspect of their relationship because there's even there's stuff like uh so in Kinski's autobiography, he has yeah. these long passages, these long, like, just, just, it's like in his shouting voice, but in prose of just demeaning Herzog as like, you know, in, in florid language. But he also contacted Herzog prior to it and said, look, I'm going to say the worst things I can think of about you because otherwise these morons aren't going to even want to read my book. I have to like, you know, give them something to read. So, you know, I think there's... There's it's actually more some specific going than on that here. in the documentary, which I know you didn't recently watch, uh-huh. uh, Rick. But Herzog talks about that he went over to his house and sat on a bench with him, oh. and they wrote the passages together. <laughs> okay, I, f- I forgot about that. It. Yeah. so. Yeah, so it sounds like they were like giggling and laughing, while at least from from Herzog's perspective, that they were giggling and laughing and trying to come up with the best ways to like make it sound like he was a monster. But then he also was like, "Yeah, the autobiography is." full of of nonsense right it does seem like after cobra verde because he talks about that after that they they basically did not speak again until he died four or five years later and there you know there is a couple of big gaps in his and i'm not saying this is like a um is like a so you see he tried to get away and kept coming back or anything like that but but you know it is 72 to 79 and then he wasn't supposed to be in fitzcarraldo it was supposed to be um uh, Mick Jagger, Mick and, Jagger, uh, yeah. Well, Mick Jagger uh, and Jason uh, Robards, J- yeah. And then, and then when when both of them had to drop out for different reasons, he combined the part into <laughs> like, ah, look, I'm just gonna do both. You're both Kinski, yeah. See, Mick that's, Jagger and you're Jason. This Robards. is this is something that I love uh, about Herzog, and I'll always put in in uh, the win column for him is his like complete disregard of notions of. Like character development and narrative, you know, integrity or whatever, because that's just not the kind of film he makes. So it makes yeah. total sense for him to be like, "Well, that's fine. <laughs> like, we'll just we'll just put them together. Who cares?" 
He'll he'll do both things that I needed two separate characters yeah. in my script to do. He'll just do it all. Um, so that's and and um, he like couldn't get someone else to do it, and had to kind of go begging Kinski to do it just because he needed someone. Although that is the one in the documentary that he says Kinski turned against me for being too crazy. <laughs> um, he he does talk about that that like I realized I had gone too far. Now, that's what's – okay, so that – I kind of want to pause that. He does say that he realized that he had ki- kept going too far when not even Kinski would back him anymore on the set of Fitzcarraldo trying to take the fucking boat over the mountain. But it doesn't stop him. Like, he just keeps being committed to that this is going to worth both filmatically and also, like, actually the special effects that he's designing that are just – they're not even special effects. They're just doing the thing again. Even even more complicated. <laughs> so I mean, I love I love the special effects in building the pyramids. <laughs> I know. Well, he, and he does it worse, right? Because like the real Fitzcarraldo cut the ship ship up into three things, and and Herzog's like, that that's too much work. We're just gonna do it in one. We're gonna make it three times more difficult than this impossible feat. That's so impossible and insane. I'm making a movie about it. Uh, which is yeah. why, I, as much as I like Fitzcarraldo, I actually think Burden of Dreams is the more interesting of the two movies. Yeah. Because, uh, yeah, what Herzog did was worse in, on so many levels, or more, like, more insane. Yeah. Yeah, <laughs> I, I gotta agree. Uh, Burden of Dreams is one of those movies that, like, uh, gets forgotten, but, like, even if you're not a fan of, of Fitz, Fitzgerald or, or Herzog as a filmmaker, like, you just have to see it because it was a crazy fucking thing done in the name of art that I, I'm not saying that it was it was justifiable, but I'm saying a crazy fucking thing done in the name of art. And it's like that makes it a crazy story because this wasn't someone trying to, like, uh, do this so that uh, the I don't know, the fucking oil company. This isn't sorcerer, right? This isn't like somebody who did something crazy so that the oil company would, you know, give them their payday or whatever they needed to get through the month. It was like, uh, I, I, I did this because I'm a filmmaker and this is the project that I wanted to devote my entire soul to. Right. Well, it's like, it's, I think that ties into Herzog's, um, you know, romanticism is the continuity with the romantic tradition is like this notion of just like the, the beauty of, of crazy dreams, commitment to crazy dreams, yeah. you know? Which, like, okay, so this is sort of an extreme example, but like this is what what separates like I, I'm only I'm just thinking about this today, but like that's what separates uh, uh you know a sort of shitty exploitive serial killer movie from like Brian Fuller's Hannibal show is because like the it of the crime is ultimately not that interesting though Brian Fuller makes it very interesting the why is that is what's interesting. Just at the end of the day, you know, rubbing your hands and saying, well, I guess some people are crazy. Some people like to drag, uh, drag uh, boats up mountains isn't interesting. <laughs> some people are just nuts. Like, that's not that's not interesting. But, like actually digging into what the specific motivations were or how, you know, the motivation started here, but then it started to reveal itself and it started to peel back is far, far more fucking interesting than just like uh, a filmmaker with a dream. <laughs> I guess I never call myself someone who reveres Herzog. I just find him fascinating, but, you know. So fascinating. That's why Fitzcarraldo and Burden of Dreams, like, it's not like I look at it as as that from that perspective. And I can see why, especially that kind of film bro contingent would. Like, see, sometimes you gotta risk a bunch of people's lives to make your art. The only thing that matters, the only thing that matters is what's on the screen. Yeah, Mm -hmm. and, and that's bullshit. Literally no movie is worth someone's life. No. No movie. No piece of art, period. And like there's – and that's why like you're – you're, 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 
your um <laughs> depends on the painting <laughs> I'm just joking. I said maybe a painting. Oh, I mean like a good one? Yeah. Yeah. Most good paintings are worth three lives. That's the exchange rate. Great Three. paintings are ten. Yeah. Uh, Dark Souls is worth two. Uh, everything else is not <laughs> worth human life. But like that's not something to be like applauded. Peter, your pyramid example was like dead up. That idea of I need to make a movie to understand the uh, what it was like to build the pyramids by building bigger pyramids is like something that even now talking about it, I just don't quite get my head. For, I can't fully understand the arrogance or the timidity, like whatever it would take to be like, I'm going to do this and then does it is so foreign to me as like wrapping my head around that I'm like a little bit in awe of the, um, yeah, arrogance, I guess. Is yeah. Like, like it, hubris. It, like it's yeah. Hubris. Like, the, the fact that that was on the table is amazing to me. Uh, definitely something that uh, uh, could could have been worse than it was. Had a uh, a toll that leaves behind a Herzog that uh, in, in the way a lot of his stuff does, with a lot of his treatment of people and animals, especially uh, the indigenous people of South South America and both uh, in both this and Wrath of God. But like it is just like, oh. How is that a thing that occurred in our life? Like in this world? <laughs> yeah. So, yeah. So what other like general, uh, we didn't really talk much about Kinski yet, but like, I feel like where I'm at with Herzog right now is there's still, there's still, there's, there's movies of his I absolutely love, which is essentially, um, I, I find in general his documentaries I like more. Not that his, a lot of his fiction work isn't great. Like I love Wrath of God. I like Fitzcarraldo. I love this movie. Quite a bit, but the things I find myself revisiting is actually like Grizzly Man and Encounters uh, at the end of the world. If I want to feel sad, I watch Into the Abyss. Like even like the White Diamond, which is not like that great of a movie, but it is like there's just a there's something about him narrating life that is so specifically enthralling to me. Yeah, I think I think Herzog's movies are good. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I think with with regards to the fact that he is both a a, a a narrative filmmaker and a documentary filmmaker, like that that is very interesting because ultimately at the end of the day, his narrative films uh, often take a sort of impartial, muted sort of camera, and also often like a lot of like handheld camera work. Um, and uh, Nosferatu sort of feels like his most uh, uh, formalistic film. Yes. Maybe outside like Rescue Dawn or something. I don't know. Um, but like even his opening shots and the fact that he pu- the opening shots of these these skeletons and the fact that he has these yeah. um, he has these uh, these nature shots, these slow motion, beautiful nature oh shots my of God. bats flying. Like all of that, obviously, hints to his uh, his documentary uh, his documentary background and future. But um, there's there, I don't see a great hmm. deal of difference in his approach to the subject matter very often, um, and, and is particularly his approach to like framing and composition. Well, I think it can be an interesting question because people people talk about you know Herzogisms or. Uh, these like essential auteurist qualities of Herzog. And I guess, what do you think those are? Um, particularly as it, you know, bleeds through from documentary to, to non-documentary. 
So I think oh he I actually think there's a part in My Best Fiend that sums it up summed it up really well for me. And I like I took note of it. It's where he talks about how much he fucking hates Well you well actually let me back up. He talks about what you about how he, Yeah, no, I guess he is. He's saying how much he hates the jungle. And like and like um the the jungle is dangerous and it's full of pain and murder and it's just like there's no way you go that he really likes being there, which is, is so funny from someone who's been in the jungle and like purposely chose movies that he was shooting in the jungle. And then and he, he went sh- back and shot Rescue Dawn. Like, yeah. <laughs> and then he shifts and he said, and I know that sounds like I hate it. He's describing all the things he doesn't like or like that. It's, it's just that's why I said, like, I almost like said, well, maybe it's not hate, but he, he is describing things that most people would then go, oh, that guy fucking hates the jungle. If I was if I was like I ate if I said I ate a meal and it like made me sick and the and the food in my mouth tasted like <laughs> cardboard and uh, when I was done, I shit for five days. And then at the end of that, I'm like, and it's the best meal I've ever had. <laughs> like, because it took yeah. me closer to what, uh, my mortality. And, and like, that's why, like, that part, that part that he describes there is like so genuine. He is saying that, like, realizing the chaos of, uh, nature, which includes humanity, is what he loves. He doesn't, see this as some like mystical jungle right. that has like divine properties but it's just a bunch of birds trying not to get murdered while they do their murdering like in that uh, chaotic destruction maelstrom the bird is pretty to look at and it makes nice noises and like he he understands that and i and that's why that's why i love herzog films there is a he shows like like when he's when you whether you're seeing like Wrath of God or Fitzcarraldo, he is like almost looking at people when he does uh, you know fictional narrative films about people. He's looking at people from that same thing of like there is beauty in in something that from that is a ball of hatred moving through <laughs> the the rainforest in South sure. America. In a way that, like, he gets that I don't know if I fully like. I don't see it the way that he sees it, but I'm always interested in describing his perspective, hearing his perspective from that, and that's also the why he's become so easy to parody because that perspective is distinct and not shared by most. Absolutely, yeah. Yeah. yeah, and I think that that's uh, I've always compared. Well, this isn't Grizzly Man Hour, but I've always compared Grizzly Man to um, the End of the Wild movie. Because I don't think the end of the wild movie actually performs that balance that the original book does, uh, or the, the the wonderful balancing act that Grizzly Man performs, which is which is about our place in nature. Into the wild is like nature's really pretty. Don't eat the wrong berries. Yeah, read your berry book. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm not saying the book. I'm saying just the the Sean Penn adaptation. And and yeah. so the the fact that those two films came out within a few years of, of each other, I was like, that's the contrast, right? Like. Herzog feels like he is he is trying to be impartial, but then he can't help. But like being in the act of being impartial, he needs to express the fact that he feels fear and dread and disgust at certain things. And then also discuss and then also, you know, uh, present the balance of it like that is that both of those are are part of his experience. Uh, but it, it's it, it, he doesn't need to make those two conflicting ideas um 
meld uh, together, he can he can he can hold on to both of them at the same time. Yeah, it's really interesting because I feel like um, a big part of to go back to what Aaron was saying about the um, finding beauty and decay is a it's a romantic notion as well. It's like Baudelaire's mm-hmm. uh, the sort of the graceful movement of the maggots on the corpse from the flowers of evil or whatever like that. That notion is there, but he draws on these things that you know. There's always this like um, these contemplative figures, the individual going up against um, the uh, the forces of the world. These like you know the the earth forces and this this solitary individual standing up for them is a very romantic notion. Except his always seems to come back to this notion that the earth doesn't really care about you specifically. Like yeah. there's not there's this um, sort of impassive. Uh, unknowability or, or in, in, you know, it's unable to be comprehended, these forces that we live among, uh, which is kind of an anti-romantic notion to me because it's not really about the individual transcending things through, you know, the power of of creation or whatever. It's you're kind yeah. of going up against the, the wall or you're going up against the rock, you know? Yeah, I feel like this is probably a good uh, transition point into the movie proper. What do you say? Yeah, let's do it. Sounds like we have to do a Grizzly Man episode, huh? <laughs> God damn, we gotta do a Grizzly Man episode. <laughs> Why haven't uh, we done a Grizzly Man episode? Uh, yeah, do you guys want to talk about uh, Werner Herzog's Nostratu? Yes. Sure. Yeah. You know, I love this part, Peter, that you keep forcing on us to make make me keep doing because uh, you're a if you didn't like it, you would edit it out. Rolling monster. Watch the only person worse than Count Dracula portray Count Dracula. <laughs> <laughs> Speak softly and carry a big coffin. Mm. Yeah, that those parts are awesome. Um, how about this? Tagline. Rats. <laughs> Ten thousand. Ten thousand rats. White's not good enough. They must be gray. Oh Jesus! Well, we'll we have to talk about that because it, yeah, um, it, it's maybe the only thing I don't like about this movie. Um, so, uh, no surprise because you you wanted them um, you wanted them um, like brown and black <laughs> with like cat, cattle dog spots. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. My problem like wasn't Dalm- the abuse. Mice, it was like the, from Royal uh, Tenenbaums. Yeah. <laughs> um. But, but uh, yeah, what what happens in this movie, Peter? Or listen to our first episode. <laughs> so uh, Nosferatu, uh, roughly for the first you know two acts or so, follows roughly the story of Dracula. It is about a uh, guy who works for a realtor's office, uh, Jonathan Harker, uh, married to his wife. Uh, it's Lucy in this. We'll get to that. Um, so it's Jonathan and Lucy, uh, married. She's been having anxiety dreams about the future, about Jonathan's safety. And, uh, but at the same time, Jonathan has to go on this big trip over the, over the Carpathian mountains, uh, into Transylvania to meet Count Dracula and sell him a fucking house. Um, and <laughs> I, I, anytime it's reduced to that, it definitely feels not a big deal. 
<laughs> yeah. It's just a, a, a real estate journey. Yeah, I imagine his journey is shorter than, like, uh, you know, some L.A. folks, uh, L.A. realtors that need to, like, go from one side of town to the other. Uh, yeah, once you actually buy a, a house, Peter, you'll realize that the that the person signing that quickly is, like, uh, the, the, the most triumphant point of this movie. <laughs> He's like, yes, whatever. Uh, you know the house is falling apart. Uh, uh that's fine. Much better. You, you don't want to, like, do an inspection or whatever. <laughs> Just uh, do me the fucking piece of paper. He's like, oh, it's right around the house. It's right around the corner from your hot wife. Oh, yes, definitely, definitely. <laughs> All right, you realize this means you're paying closing costs, right? That doesn't even happen with buyers. <laughs> like... Uh, He's like, whatever I gotta do to lock you in a room and eat your wife. Like, wait! Well, still, it's a pretty easy sale. I'll, I'll it's a good it. commission. Yeah. I'll, risk, I'll risk it. <laughs> so, um, you know the story of Dracula. Uh, Jonathan Harker uh, has to go across the mountains, sell real estate to Dracula. Dracula is not a very good host. I mean, he gives him a great meal at start, but I tend to it's think a lot of like, food. what happens after that. Yeah, you know, and he puts on a good spread. See, um, but see Peter, that, this is where you're all wrong. Like, a meal is not just about the food you're eating, it's also about the, the ambiance. And, and I the gotta company. tell you, <laughs> I gotta tell you, the ambiance on this meal, not great. Okay, here's what I'll say. Here's what I'll say. You ever go on, like, a really long hike? Like, a really, really long hike? And then, like, you, no. you get back to, like, your, your tent or your Airbnb or your cabin or whatever. It doesn't matter if it's the most hideous place on Earth as long as you have, like cold water and your granola bar or whatever it's a feast hmm. so i think he earned he earned that meal and he doesn't particularly care who he's sitting across from uh it's not a cross a cross would have made more sense he's yeah, like kitty corner he's kitty corner and he's just staring at him under yeah. a very it's a compressed table under candlelight not good it, it, he's like <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he's like, I really got to make the sale. Also, I got to chow down on these pork chops because Dracula's a hell of a cook. Um, so, anyways, uh, there's, water, there's watermelon on the table. Not a lot of watermelons in the Carpathians, I don't think. But. <laughs> yeah, the, I noticed there's like a decadence of spread, and I was just ima- imagining him like watching Bon Appetit videos on. on <laughs> he's been cooking all day. <laughs> <laughs> it's tough with those nails too. Yeah, like. it's true. Like, uh, oh wait, how did you need this dough? <laughs> Gross. <laughs> Gross. Uh he doesn't need knives though, just uses them claws. Mm. Um He has to wash the claws a lot though. Uh safety first. Even the Draculas know it. He's like uh, he's like, you don't you don't think these knives are good? You want to see me cut through a shoe? <laughs> I would Are you selling me your nails? <laughs> take a shoe apart. <laughs> <laughs> here's 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 an aluminum can. Ow, that one hurt a little bit. I don't know why we're doing this for two in a in a Herzog voice. Yeah, it's, it's, yeah. At no point in my best fiend was he like I almost played Nosferatu, but then Klaus Kinski was like, "What about me?" And I was like, "Uh." <laughs> he did almost play Fitzcarraldo, though. Yeah, he did almost play Fitzcarraldo. He said he was that fucking desperate, and I was like, I mean, Herzog's a good actor, but like, come on. Um, Yay, the boat is moving. I've never <laughs> been more excited in my life. <laughs> this was worth all the pain that we went through 
Give my me a high five and a hug, please. <laughs> my, my joy is is a cup that constantly runneth over. Move uh, those trees. <laughs> <laughs> so Dracula makes some uh, uh, killer pork chops and some watermelon. <clears throat> then he detains him um, <laughs> at his castle. Um, and then Dracula ships off in some coffins on a ship towards, uh, is it w- w- uh, Wilmer? Vis- Vismar. 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 Can I ask you a quick question before that? Uh, do you think that Jonathan uh, may be suspicious that uh, Dracula wants to fuck his wife? You know, that's part of the Dracula story every time is he's like, Tell me a little bit about yourself. And he's like, uh, well, I'm a realtor. He's like, more specifically, who do you have sex with? And he's like, oh, I have a locket and a picture of of my wife. And he's like, Winona Ryder. Excellent. (laughs) Dracula needs to, like, chill for five minutes. Like, he's like, here's the locket. He, like, keels over and is like, let me buy the house. How long does it take to get there? You're locked in your room. I'm gone. And this movie is so muted, though, that... Uh, this movie is so muted that uh, it doesn't have the impact that it does in the Bram Stoker uh, version or whatever, where it's like, a love cast, a love cast through the ages. Instead, it's like, your wife's hot. I'll I'll buy a house just to have sex with her. I like that neck and only (laughs) good neck. No other features. (laughs) <laughs> but yeah so uh dracula detains him dracula goes to to uh is it Vis- Vis- vismar i think so uh vismar uh the german town that uh the harkers live in uh and he uh gets into town as a force of nature a plague rats come with him the entire the boat arrives and uh, the entire crew is dead of plague and uh the plague sets into town and very quickly the plague uh uh, kills, uh, you know, city officials and kills much of the town and has them quarantining in their homes and people are carrying off corpses. Very similar to the original Sfratu, a little bit of the Coppola version. Um, and uh, uh, Lucy, I almost said Mina, uh, Lucy takes it upon herself to uh, defeat this great evil. At that same time, she's having these anxieties, horrific anxiety dreams, and uh, the, I think they're Romani people? Is that is that the ethnic group? The Romani people help um, uh, Jonathan escape from the castle and get back to Vismar, uh, but at a, a slower pe- slower pace, obviously, than Dracula, because Dracula gets to uh, ride in style with his black coffins. Um, so, uh, you know... Uh, Jonathan essentially becomes an invalid in the house. He he mumbles, he, he giggles at strange at strange times. Like he's he's largely uh, exempt from the plot at this point uh, for until the, the last part of the movie. Um, and then uh, Lucy devises a plan to kill Dracula. The plan involves uh, essentially playing along with his his seduction plan. Um, he's already spoken with her and uh, communicated his uh, his um his intentions with her uh she uh turned him away uh and she says all right i'll allow him into you know into my like my i'll allow him to you know get close to me to be intimate with me uh but just long enough to distract him to be uh frozen dead by the rising sun to have him ignore the crying of the the cock and uh that happens 
uh, he he's stunned, he's petrified, he cru- he falls in the corner, and then uh, Van Helsing, I haven't mentioned him much because he's not that important in the movie, uh, shows up. He's like, he's like, I- I'll do I'll do cool Van Helsing shit. Do you want me to do cool Van Helsing shit? I'll do it off screen. <laughs> well, he's also kind yeah, of a he's an he's an anti Van Helsing sort of yeah because he's, he's, he's a man like, of science. This is dumb. This isn't how science works. Yeah, you're yeah, wrong. So he- He's the exact opposite of Van Helsing as Hugh Jackman, and then uh, several, several points away from Hugh, from uh, 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 Anthony Hopkins in uh, the Coppola version. <laughs> uh, so, anyways, uh, Van Helsing goes upstairs, uh, stabs Coppola, or stabs Coppola, stabs uh, Nosferatu. <laughs> Crazy uh, twist. With the stake, um, he comes down. Coppola just gets handed. back from fucking <laughs> filming Apocalypse Now, <laughs> yeah. and then fucking goes to visit Herzog. We're ma- we're making some really good stuff, I think. And Herzog's like, D- "Could you move to the right?" <laughs> he's like Scatman Crothers. Bit. He's like Scatman Crothers in The Shining. <laughs> we will both have uh, competing documentaries in the eighties of who was the biggest madman on set. <laughs> So, uh, 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 Jonathan um, reveals his true sort of nature at this point, that he has been corrupted by the vampire curse. Also, as a daywalker, I didn't quite understand that. Um, It hasn't fully... I actually kind of took it like maybe Nosferatu just moved into Harker's body, but maybe... Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, well, yeah, I I agree with that. Um, So, uh... Jonathan essentially uh, uh, like rises from his chair, his his, his supposed stupor. Clean this dust, please. <laughs> Innocent and little it, dust. Yeah, that is. It is a pretty funny scene because he's like yeah. uh, uh, Lucy to protect him has put little uh, uh, consecrated host around his um, his chair, but instead he's like, uh, "What am I paying you for?" And then the, the, the servant comes and quickly shuffles it up despite the house being a uh, a, a crime scene um in a jo- uh, van helsing city? is arrested and uh jonathan rides off into the uh rides off into the sunset into the, the desert? desert i guess uh presumably to allow nosferatu to, to live another day but without sort of uh without sort of the intent the the uh the, the uh, I don't know, I guess the virus lives on, the plague lives on through that. And with this sort of ironic ending where Lucy not only doesn't get to live, but uh, she doesn't defeat the vampire threat. Right. Uh, sort of feels like a wild bunch or, you know, um, sort of a Bonnie and Clyde or like an ironic sort of new Hollywood or a, a easy rider. Like it does remind me of, I know this is not from the same film movement, but it is of the time. Um, sort of like a, a new Hollywood ending where it's like, oh shit, the original story was actually, uh, ends with, uh, with triumph. This, uh, and you know, even the couple version ends with triumph, but it's sort of a, a melancholy triumph. Like Dracula's dead, but, uh, they also sort of, in a sense, lose Mina's soul, Mina slash Lucy. We'll have to get to that. That That's um, actually super this, interesting. This... Cause I actually thought that this one had, uh, one of the happiest movie endings I've ever seen. Um, because there's a part where Van Helsing uh, stabs the person and they go to arrest him and they realize they can't because they say, quote, the police don't exist anymore. Yeah. <laughs> um, it's an abolition. So I, I, I took it as a pretty, like, happy ending overall. Yeah. I don't know about you guys. That's a good point. It's an abolitionist parable. Because <laughs> it's the, an abolitionist parable. To be clear, it's because the police are bad. <laughs> yeah, I would say Nosferatu, uh, secret liberator of Bismarck. <laughs> 
Um, but yeah, let's let's talk about that because this movie is far more concerned with plague. It has a much darker ending than the original uh, film or pretty much any of the other adaptations. Pretty much every adaptation. Cool, including, yeah. Including the Hammer ones where Dracula somehow magically, Christopher Lee, gets to come back in the next one. Uh, including the Hammer ones. Uh, Dracula pretty much always dies in Dracula. Mm-hmm. Yeah, this is like, God, like, I actually uh, was revisiting this uh I'm really interested to hear Rick, by the way, because I guess he just watched it all the time in eighth grade, as you said, Rick. I, yeah. I want to get to that in a sec. But, um, man, this like this movie blew me away when I first saw it because it is like – even like most most vampire movies are fun. Like to some extent. Even the original <laughs> Los Maratu is fun. This is like the bleakest, saddest, mm. just like depressing – Melancholy. Mo- melancholy. Like – it is it is just really underlines Dracula and vamp- vampires as like death and pest- pestilence where there's no hope. Um not only does Lucy die, doesn't save the day, like we don't even like even the climactic moments we have it robbed from us. Like we don't get to see triumph of any sort. We uh, he doesn't die in a burst of flames from the sun. He collapses on the ground. That's a normal triumph when a, a feel a good like feeling of uh, explosiveness, literally and metaphorically, when the vampire meets the sun. We don't get to see Van Helsing drive a stake into him and get that satisfaction as an audience of well, this monster's finally been beaten. We only see the aftermath, which is them trying to arrest uh, arrest Van Helsing. Uh, after Lucy's died and Jonathan is uh, stuck in his chair turning into a vampire and only realize they can't they can't do much about it because uh-oh the town doesn't basically exist anymore and before that we see nothing but rats infest the city graves being carried away and people so set on the fact that their death is imminent that they're literally having a last supper while being overcome by rats like it is like just something i've just i've never seen i don't think there is a vampire (laughs) or a dracula movie that's like this it is almost overwhelming in its sadness it's 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 melancholy it's an apocalypse movie sad in a way oh it definitely is this this Mm -hmm. does not feel like this is going to be just bismar um it's melancholy and sad and muted in such a way that um it truly feels like death is creeping in, uh, not, it's not sweeping in on, uh, you know, four, four horses. Like, death is, like, uh, crawling and seeping in in the corners that you're yeah. not even looking in. And, like, to, how do you fight an, an encroaching rat army? You don't. It's in your house before you even realize it's time to fight. And it's even apocalypse like in this. It's even one of the saddest apocalypse movies I've ever seen because normally in most apocalypse movies – there's there's triumph, right? Like Satan wins or the evil force gets let loose and like, sure, it's bad for everyone else, but that evil force having a great time, not Dracula. Like this guy fucking wants to die. He hates being alive. Right. For a Kinski performance that we've talked about how uh, how maniacal he is, it is so muted and calm and he never shows emotions and he talks about not wanting to be alive but being stuck in this thing where he can't die which we see how literal it is with him even after he quote unquote dies being passed on um he gets no joy of anything like it is just 
God, it's, it is a depressing movie. Well, it's funny that you think it's you interpreted it as Nosferatu himself, kind of like infecting Jonathan. Like he's he can. There's a continuity there. Yeah, because I kind of thought that was. I mean, I've always seen that as like evil persisting, but not necessarily Nosferatu. Because I kind of, I guess, where I would disagree a little bit with the total bleakness is that the movie aligns itself in a weird way with this like humanized vampire right like it's his the he's film so sad. he's like this weary sad vampire who's like uh, supposed to generate empathy in some ways um and so him dying is the triumph like evil persists <laughs> but at least he got to die seems to like, be like the a, you're saying a goth victory is to die yeah well it is i mean that's he spends the whole movie just being like i wish i was dead and then he is <laughs> so- so, so you're saying Nosferatu is a goth, and all he wanted to do was kiss his great love, and then after that he could die, and then it actually happens, and he's yeah. like, he's like, he was like, that was legit. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that was actually in the in the original script. That's legit. And then he it's dies. It's in German, though. It's in German. It's his last, in, in, his in final German, words. It's like it's like five seconds of dialogue, and then when the card pops up, it's just that's legit. <laughs> Uh, I think we got a fan edit coming for no no right on our website. No, I mean, no, Rick, I I I I I I love your interpretation because that's exactly where I was at. But you put, I think you put it in in a in more uh, uh you put it more succinctly than uh, I could have. Yes, yes. He's not theatrical. I think most Dracula's that talk about like I'm cursed to no. have to have to sate my desires. Like he's like, yeah, I can't die. Um, he's stuck. exhausted. It's, it's, it's he's exhausted. Like, which makes me feel like there's a part of this movie where you're like, "Hey, Dracula, like you know what kills you, so just go die." Like in a way that I don't get from other Dracula mo- movies. Like they talk about the curse, but ultimately they get joy out of these like pleasures in life too much. Even though sometimes they do like mope around a little bit like a goth. And say, I wish I was dead. They don't really mean it. Like, they just uh, are having a down moment where this Dracula really just feels like he would give anything to not be part of this earth anymore. And so that that idea that at the end, it's like his soul or whatever transferring into into Harker makes everything like it, it doesn't like sure it's painful for him to die. He has to reestablish himself. He's in, you know, something else. Like, he might not be rich. He might not have a castle. Like, all that kind of stuff. So, it's an inconvenience. Ultimately, death in in that moment is just a an inconvenience and maybe a painful one. But he, unfortunately, continues on. Like, it matches the tone of, like, uh, literally cursed to walk the earth until the end of times. Right. Yeah, I mean, maybe I think they're both right in a sense, not to play centrist here. <clears throat> yeah, um, <laughs> sure. But uh, the 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 idea that um, he is this sad figure that because the the movie he both laments his immortality. He's in this like depressive state when they find him, and he's he's seeking isolation. But then when he sees a picture of uh, of Lucy, he's like, maybe this is my cure. Maybe this is the thing that can that can solve me. And and what's interesting about the production is that apparently. Uh, you know, Kinski was not a well-behaved cast member. Um, Kinski apparently was, you know, doing a lot of the ranting and raving and such. But uh, he, but what, uh, 
<laughs> Herzog's tricks. One of Herzog's tricks that he, at least he said is that I would I would make myself the, uh, the 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 target of his ire so that he would tire himself out and then he would give these sort of solemn wonderful performances. But he would actually like follow commands on set and, and and commit himself with professionalism once he actually got some of his 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 rage out and his demons out and you can feel that sort of resignation. Uh, in the role, he was apparently actually really good. There's for some reason they, uh, this gets mentioned like in the documentary, and it gets mentioned in in, in uh, you know trivia sections and such that he was he had to be in makeup for a long time, obviously. And uh, Reiko Crook was the makeup artist, and apparently him and her got along really really well. Um, so he wasn't an asshole to everybody on set. It sounds like maybe he was ninety percent of it went to Herzog. Um, and, and in such a lovely desolate film. Matching Dracula's tenor to the film, this sort of muted tenor, um, not just makes the movie more uh, tonally consistent, like Dracula isn't a raving, screaming fiend. Um, He is this sort of like muted, like slow corrupting force. Um, And this is the first this is the first Dracula film where I thought like. This guy just needs to go to therapy. <laughs> every, every Dracula movie is about Dracula being sad, right? But this is the first time where I've been like, I think this dude just needs someone to talk to. Like, Jonathan is just like, hey, can you sign on the dotted line, motherfucker? And he's like, I, I, I'm so lonely all the time. Like, can you, can you, like, listen to me for three seconds? Yeah, and there's also the notion that nothing – his line to Jonathan, I think, is, uh, can you imagine, you know, experiencing the same futile things – for centuries or whatever it's like oh geez. yeah jesus dracula that sounds like a bummer well he that's why i feel like he doesn't even care too much about like most dracula movies they are like okay he gets in his ship and he's like very careful to make sure that nothing happens to him and i feel like this movie shows a lot of carelessness in a way that sort of supports the fact that he doesn't really care all that much about anything like when i mean when they're driving on that boat feels generous, logs tied together with the with the stick people, with the people just using sticks the to get raft. down the river. Yeah. I mean, rafts usually have more, I think, uh, cohesiveness than that. And he just has, like, a bunch of coffins balanced on that. It's like, this guy doesn't care if he goes over a rapid. He'll be fine. Yeah, <sighs> yeah, yeah. And, I, and that's sort of the fact that his depression is not romanticized or glamorized. And he doesn't have brides either, um, which was not in the original the original Nosferatu. I, I, he doesn't have brides either. But it, it's, you know, it's, it's a big part of the Dracula mythos. Um, and Herzog, because of uh, rights issues, was able to finally use Harker and Dracula and, and the it's, actual It's names. hilarious that the rights expired in 1979 when this movie was shot and came out. Yeah, it's it's amazing. Um, but his is not romanticized people call me a vulture and i don't know why (laughs) and well that's i mean that's that's not also not a coincidence because there were five other dracula movies that came out this year the frank langella one which is pretty good it's it's nowhere near this one but it's pretty good um let me there's a list real quick we can knock this out really quickly um there's a love at first bite uh nocturna which is like a more artsy one uh, Drac- and Dracula Blows is Cool. None of those are particularly notable, but uh, also in this year was another Nosferatu riff um, in Salem's Lot came out this year. Uh, oh, yeah. Really? So, 
so that's not that's nothing to do with the Dracula thing because obviously it was based on a book from years earlier. But they uh, Toby Hooper obviously very inspired by Nosferatu. Well, it's, it's, it is pretty interesting that it's like it's it's he went back to Murnau for very specific reasons, but then he's able to incorporate um, Stoker in these various ways. So it's very like there's a lot of intertextuality going on. He also is really insistent, if you yeah. read any of his stuff, that it's not a remake. So I'm afraid that your name for this whole series is probably going to have to change because he said it's an homage. So I think you, <laughs> you have to call this a scromage, probably. <laughs> oh, oh, we have been. That's good. That's good. But yeah, I, my final point on that was just kind of like, uh, it's not romanticized, it's not glamorized. And like I think that kind of like... That, that, that kind of speaks to what we were talking about earlier with Herzog, that he, um, he, he, Herzog wouldn't be someone who takes, like, the idea of existential depression. He's like, isn't it just fucking cool to be sad? Like, right. he's, he's, he's not filling the movie with, like, I mean, this would have been pre-shoegaze and stuff, but he's not filling this movie with, like, cool-ass ambient you know dark 70s stuff like tangerine dream to like make it romanticized well it's popova yeah popova is cool but like it is about the sitting in the 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 mire like it's sitting in the muck of of, of this sort of like muted gloom And, and i love that i love that about it and it also speaks specifically to its uh european um it's european execution as opposed to a more sensationalized american execution can i jump in right there because i i want to expand on that because um i would say more than just european it's it's germanic that's a really specifically germanic yes really key thing because um so a big i think a, a question that gets asked that i always wondered was um why herzog wanted to do this in the first place right like why do you go do uh not a beat for beat. It's not like Gus Van Sant's Psycho, but it's like recreates pretty closely a lot of scenes from the original. Um, and a lot of the most famous shots are in there. A lot of the most famous shots, and it's Him like standing on the bow of that ship. It, the stylization is really set apart from most of uh, Herzog's films. It's like very. It seems like an oddity, right? It seems like it kind of stands out. And his whole thing uh, was that he went to. Basically, for the the folks coming up in Germany in the sixties, the what we call the new German cinema now, we think mostly of like Herzog and Fassbinder and Vendors, but also um, a bunch of other folks who are who are making films. Then there was this idea that they were the German cinema was was fatherless because the previous generation you either had uh, people were either exiled or they died in camps or in the war or they themselves were Nazis. So basically, the well had been poisoned. So for living in the shadow of World War II in Germany, and you're looking for you want to be part of a con- or he wanted to be part of a continuity of um, like a national cinema, you have to go back further. And his thing was going back to Murno to try and find a touchstone to create a meaningful like he calls it like the legitimate German cinema, the people who are not collaborators that did not. Uh, succumb to the Reich and that also didn't leave that you know you have like Fritz Lang and folks I mean basically all of Hollywood was created by German exiles right in the um, post-war period and so (laughs) so for if you're in German and you're trying to do a non-Hollywood German cinema you have to look back further and um, where he lands is is Murnau and Nosferatu specifically Uh, so he has this stylized genre thing and then he fills it with 
uh, Wagner. The whole journey, Harker's journey is set to um, the strains from Das Rheingold. And uh, a lot of the, the shots aren't just like painterly, but are actual like stagings of German romantic paintings. Um, like oh, there's yes. this uh, Harker standing on that, sitting on that rock in that sort of desolate mountainscape with, is, is is a painting. It's I don't a, know the name of it, but and, yeah. and this and the music when he like comes out of that waterfall tunnel into the mountain and sees the castle for the first time. That's and then, that's yeah. Wagner. Yep. Yeah, but it's. I mean, it, it reminded me so much of the monolith music when the monkeys first see it in two thousand one. Yeah, that same that same sort of like, um, not reverence or triumph, but awe of the unknowable thing that has just been thrust in in front of your vision do you know that's all one chord it's pretty awesome it's a e flat major just like done by a lot of different instruments in different arpeggios so that's yeah but most then- people if they if they know me they know i understand music <laughs> pretty well so cool. i understand it's like, really cool though that like notes that it, it, chords keys <laughs> <laughs> I thought you would enjoy that the most, Aaron. I, I read yeah, that for you. It, it, I I love that it's. I love though that the like um, the original film. We talked about using um, our own scores. Uh, I I love using watching old silent movies that didn't have a sort of officialized score and and uh, putting on like Demdeka Stare and sort of like a culty uh, a, a culty ambient spooky music. Um, and uh for for this movie you would never do that because it is uh composed by it has actual compositions that are there to set the mood designed by the filmmaker and they set the mood in such a way that feels so you're, you're the what you're hitting on rick and the history is so important i think um it, it, it's so much more epic it gives the the film that could at times can feel so muted and melancholy it gives this this sort of sweeping feel um but without actually betraying the fact that this is a movie about uh, drowning in the muck of death. Right, right. And I kind of, I guess I kind of wonder that, that melancholy feel and, of course, the, like, bummer of an ending. And, like, so he's, like, dealing with these, with this source material, but then he's putting, like, his Herzog stamp on it in these various ways. I think the opening sequence, too, with the mummies and the, that, like, heartbeat soundscape thing that's going on it's really intense it's like has no bearing again really on the narrative it has nothing it was shot in mexico those are famous yeah exactly Me- i was gonna say i thought it was i thought it was south america but yeah it's Me- mexican uh mummies that he yes. they like pulled out and like stood up against a wall <laughs> yeah, totally but so like i'm not you know like maybe that has to do with the persistence of of evil across space and time or maybe he just thought it looked cool which i think is probably more likely I feel like maybe those like authorial stamps come from him being where he was working with the material at that time and, uh, you know, like grappling with the legacy of the war or whatever. I don't know. But um, I think it's pretty fascinating to watch all these things, the way they intersect and play with each other. So the one thing I'd mention on the mummies really quick, as long as we, we talked about it, is that I actually took it as like a reference for what we're going to see throughout the movie because mummies by their like definition are like desiccated corpses that have had all the moisture and like signs of life ripped from it mm-hmm. and that's what we, we we end up seeing right like once nosferatu or dracula enters the city like this the town slowly dies bit by bit and gets faster until you know you can extrapolate that if he stayed mm-hmm. there longer eventually every sign of life would disappear and it would be nothing left than 
someone whose ex- own existence is the definition of death, which is Dracula. So that's mm. kind of. I thought it was more than that. I like it. Sure. And even when they have the Carpe Diem sequence, uh, where uh, Lucy towards the end of the movie, is where they all stand on their desks. <laughs> Oh, Captain, my Captain, when Lucy oh, shouts captain, out a captain. captain. No, the original purpose of Carpe Diem, which was like people partying their asses off because uh, the Black Plague was killing everybody. Yeah. Oh, oh Captain, uh, my Captain, <laughs> you are not qualified to take a boat in the ocean where uh, waves and nature will destroy you. Seize the day. Oh, Captain, my Captain, may your ship sink beneath the deep loam into the murky depths of your own soul. Generally, desks cannot support a human body. They were designed poorly <laughs> by by frail, imperfect beings. <laughs> yeah, uh, for this for this riff, um, I'd like to end it by uh, continuing my point. Um, so <laughs> the, 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 the Carpe Diem sequence, uh, where, uh, she wanders out in the street and she meets all these people. They're like, oh yeah, we have the, we have the plague and, um, we're going to party. We're going to eat everything we can. We're going to dance. We're going to drink. And then we're probably all going to go home and die. But like today is the day that feels like, um, a DMT trip of a dying man. Like the yeah. final, great. The fi- the final moments of revelry of, of somebody who has acknowledged their death and they know that the city that like you both have said, like the city of Vilmar is becoming a uh, Vismar, excuse me, is becoming a, a, a husk of itself. It will become a mummy soon where the, there's no more eyes or there's no more tongue that nothing left to speak, nothing left to move, just this sort of uh, hollow hollow structure that once uh served as the home of a person and like yeah. i love i love how the the film sort of like takes something that at first is just like ooh, that's spooky and then when ooh, you there's rats watch ooh, the, there's a grave once you've seen the movie a couple times you're like oh no this is like this is a movie ruminating on death and this is almost like uh, i forget the term it's not intermezzo but there's there's a term for like um when old films would have uh an opening segment where they were just uh, even Jeremiah Johnson has it as sort of like a throwback. Uh, they play a piece of music uh, before the film to like get you into the mood. Sure, they made um, a movie out of the, the meme. It's an old theatrical thing. Uh, yeah, I uh, I really like those scenes of them just being like, "Yeah, we have the plague. We're gonna die." I mean, they're all just so so austere in their presentation. Like it's just a table put near the canals, and they're gonna eat. And, like, they can't even clear off the rats off the table for their last meal. Like, that's how, like, um, that's how omnipresent the the pestilence is in their town at this point. But, like, we'll eat over it. And it really, you know, it really connected, I think, in general to something that great poet Dave Matthews said when he said, uh, eat, drink, or be merry for tomorrow we die because we're tripping bellies. And I'm like, I get it. Now, Dave, you probably saw this movie and wrote Tripping Billies. He was like, he was like, uh, crash, crash into the canal. Same same album. (laughs) Yeah, no. Same one, yeah. Yeah, yeah, most people don't know that, like, uh, (laughs) 
What the fuck's that album called? Um, it'd be funnier if Dancer? I knew. It might be called Crash. Is it called Crash? Probably. Isn't it called like a, a something dancer? It's probably something dumb. Yeah. Uh, F- what, fiddle, what, what? fiddle Rock 3000. <laughs> Were you ever three thousand? Uh, punch it into the fiddle rock machine, sir. Let, let me ask you: Were you ever a Dave guy, Rick? You you seem either like you went through a, a weird phase or were anti Dave from the beginning. I'm pretty pretty strongly anti Dave. <laughs> I mean, I, I guess I guess over time I've mellowed in the sense that I just don't give a shit. But when well, I gave yeah. a shit, it would have been anti. Yeah, it's hard to hate someone that's uh, essentially, you know, culturally dead. Uh, it, yeah, it would be weird if you're like, you know what, I hated them for most of my life, and then I finally got into them when they released uh, their seminal Big Whiskey and the Grugrox King what in 2009. What the fuck? What does that mean? What are those words? I had to look, I had to look it up. I didn't <laughs> see that album name before. Uh, no, the, the album was called Crash, but yes, Tripping Billies and Crash were both on it. And they also had a song called Don't Drink the Water. Maybe on that album or a different album, but let's say it's this album for this hmm. joke. And I got to tell you, you shouldn't drink the water in the pestilence now. Definitely not. And this is a film. This is a film very concerned with water. So that's because we're, we're tripping middleies. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, we're. I know we're we're getting close to the end. I think it's worth uh, talking about why this movie didn't get the ASBCA stamp of approval at the end. If anyone wants to. Uh, yeah, it's 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 worth marking off here before we get to the end. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, so uh, there's a lot of rats in this movie. Big rat movie. Uh, when they arrived, they were white, <laughs> you know, lab well, rats. It does sound like you are a director that everyone is turning against. <laughs> like you sounded for a second there what like the director of uh, uh, Boondock Saints was probably saying all the time. Like there's a lot of rats in this movie. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not speaking uh, paranoically. I'm okay. saying they're literal rats. The problem oh, is when, okay. you make, Great. when you make rats a, a, a metaphor for things. When I'm talking about actual rats, it's like scapegoats. Like I'm talking about, I'm talking about goats that escape. Like not the you know the the thing that you blame stuff on. Obviously, es- escaped goats. <laughs> escaped goats. <laughs> uh, rats were shipped in for the film. They were white. Her, uh, from several accounts, it sounds like Herzog was like, "No, I want them gray, more uh, a more muted, <laughs> less less light, uh, less uh, a light, vibrant color." Um, uh, little did he know he was shooting in fucking Germany, and everything would have a gray overcast sort of shadow pallor to it. Uh, he could have just let uh, nature uh, take over and make all the rats look, the rats look gray or lit them differently. Uh, but instead, uh, it sounds like they were, were they dunked in pools to somewhat dye them and a significant portion of them died during this process. That's my understanding. Uh, they're also housed so- in like a, like a barn on the outskirts of town. Sounds like a terrible scene. Yeah, and, and, and there's the, I don't know how much of this is true, but it sounds like yeah. So the, so a significant portion would die during the dying, and then once they were housed, uh, they weren't housed and fed properly. So it sounds like a lot of them cannibalized each other. So like, so what you're saying is that it's the mostly the rats' fault. <laughs> I would say the rats should have just held out for their next meal. No, the rats fucking the rats were abused. The rats yeah. were horrifically hor- horrifically abused. Um, and I think that it's one of those things where at the time, like it, you know, it could have been chalked up to, you know, a tour excess, but even, even then the the guy that was sort of the animal wrangler was like, he, he did, he disassociated himself with the fi- from the film because he was like, I have, I have no interest 
the guy that was originally hired to like help with the animals, he's like, I have no interest in participating with this further and spoke out about it. And that's partially why, why we know. Um, and yeah, it's, you know, there's also other allegations of like uh, Herzog mistreating, I think monkeys uh, during uh, Aguirre and chickens, know, chickens. And, mm-hmm. you know, there's, he just, he there's, just, there's a difference between like killing a, a cow in apocalypse now. And then a bunch of people ate it. And like, a bunch of rats died for no fucking reason. Yeah. His vibe just seems to be, well, I mean, when he's discussed these things, like the the sense I've always gotten is that he just doesn't really, he just doesn't really care about that. He just doesn't think it's important. (laughs) That's all it is. Yeah. That's always the, yeah. I I actually haven't, it's funny that you, you mentioned Rick that like, that's what he's basically said in interviews or anytime it's mentioned to him. And I, again, this is not an ex- excuse or like, well, it's fine because he didn't care. I think when you watch a Herzog movie or like one of, or especially like documentaries or something like that, you do get a sense that like, this is a guy who thinks nature is full of murderers and it's okay to murder back, even if you are in a different position than the rest of nature. So yeah, it, Herzog, of all things, does not strike me as someone who not isn't just like not an animal rights activist, but like legitimately doesn't care about animals. Yeah, to the degree that he does care, I think it's when he talks about chickens like being soulless, like to look into the eyes of a chicken is to gaze into like the meaningless abyss of the yeah. like the stupidity of light. You know what I mean? Like that's his his vibe. Yeah. So yeah. I mean, he like, doesn't it, see it, it, he doesn't see bears as majestic creatures. He sees them as vicious murder machines. Like yeah. Right. Yeah. And, and and like there is there there's like a there's a moral spectrum of like um I directly killed this animal and then ate it or I humanely killed this animal to ate to eat it and uh far further down that spectrum towards the evil range is uh I don't care about this animal's life at all other than to get my shot. Um, and that's something that like is my only real apprehension with the film is that like you're watching the rats in the film and you're like, would have been twice as many rats if you didn't drown in a fucking pool, dude. Mm. Fucking boiling bleach pool or whatever they had to do. Not bleach, I guess. Um, but a boiling pool to make the discolor them like, uh, against, it sounds like against, uh, the wishes of, of, of folk. I mean, against the advice of people who are like that you're going to kill a, a significant portion of them. And I guess um, this is this is where my sort of like later in life uh l- the lack of appeal for some Herzog shit is is because I know I don't know. I strongly suspect his response to that would be that it's it's his commitment to the film. Like he just he's going to plow through. It's going to be one more naysaying against you know the the completion of the vision or whatever and that's the kind of like it doesn't have to be macho so much as just like that you called it tunnel vision Aaron but it comes off to me as kind of like you know well fuck you then (laughs) I I really admire a lot of his stuff and then there's moments like that where it's like well that's a sociopathic thing to do yeah and it's like I could see him I I see him at different points even in My Best Fiend which was made 21 years ago like I I see him and in recent interviews and stuff I've seen him sort of uh, uh, own some of the the fact that like his early films were very um, risk they took risks 
with people's safety and lives and people were injured, uh, you know, I would probably need to read more third-hand accounts that didn't fucking come from Herzog <laughs> to know how much of it was on him to, to judge whether or not he was he had culpability in it. But like, yeah, you, you said the plane crash and there were injuries on Fitzcarraldo and Aguirre and like he allowed Kinski to run rampant on set and like Kinski fucking like was at c- certain points would be abusive of people during shots because his character was a raving abuser and it's like, hey man, that's what the fucking acting is. Um, maybe <laughs> maybe don't actually hit people on the head with a sword. I, I'm I'm with I'm with both of you I think on this this thing that like killing rats is bad. Um, <laughs> glad, glad we, care. Yeah, even with the contrition, it's it's kind of part and parcel of the mythology, and he does he does uh, pump up the mythology quite a bit, which makes sense. You know, he's a he he's a storyteller, and that's what he does. So you know, it, it's not like you can't go back in time and uh, and un undie the rats. So. I don't know. Yeah, you, exactly. Exactly. You can't go back and undie the rats. I was more just looking for like, had he ever at least taken culpability for it? Right. Because, um, so, uh, Rick, do you have anything that you want to hit before we, we move to final thoughts? Um, well, I would say one thing uh, that we haven't talked about that I would throw in there is that uh, Isabella Johnny's performance is pretty spectacular. <sighs> um, oh, yeah. Holy shit. She's yeah. So good. Her yeah. sort of like nervous, her nervous uh, nightmares and her, her tension dreams, her ter- her terror dreams, or or are, are, uh, her just waking up is like uh, it, it immediately bridges the gap between that sort of like um, immediacy of seventies filmmaking and that sort of theatricality of twenties filmmaking. Absolutely, that's a really that's really well said. Yeah, the the scene when um, actually the shot when uh, Nosferatu leans in to bite Harper Harker the first time and it cuts also to Lucy raising her arm in the white nightgown as she's going sleepwalking those two there's a paired shot that I think is like really draws together 20s Weimar cinema and 70s like new German cinema exactly like you're talking in a really fascinating way I also just kind of feel like the more she's on screen in the film she's a bigger role I feel like than most Lucy's do or whoever she, um, even though she's not successful, I feel like this is this and uh, Coppola's Dracula probably make Lucy the biggest character. Yeah, she kind of I feel like she just she kind of strolls in and steals the movie a little bit, steals the focus yeah. of the movie. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Jonathan is usually kind of a, a wet rat, a wet dish rag. True. Of a All, character. Ever since um, the start. Yeah. Yeah. And so like even in the even in the original uh, Lugosi Dracula. Like that, that happens. But yeah. she, you know, the, the the Mina character isn't is no great shakes either in that. Um, by the end of the movie, yeah. well, I also really like her in this, like her character, because like literally everything else falls apart that normally helps in these movies, right? Like Van Helsing is absolutely no help. As a matter of fact, like he is an asshole who doesn't believe her through till until the end, until she's dead. Then he's yeah. Like, oh wait, I should have listened um, to you. Like Harker's <laughs> worthless. Like there's no police. Like she literally has like, okay, I, I figured this out. Here's what I need to do. It may cost me my life, but, um, I'm going to prove that my love for uh, Jonathan and everything else is, how about the, is legitimate. How about the scene in the square when she's just like – her pleas are falling on deaf ears and she's just like, why? I know I know why this is happening. Why won't anyone listen to me? And they're all just like coming through with the coffins. It's kind of goosebumps. Yeah, the, the doctors the doctors won't help her. They won't listen to her. They're just they're, – they're basically just like, yep, these are all corpses that need to be disposed of. 
the the scene of the doctors pushing through that door to once they realize it's the plague to like get the fuck out of there and the rats coming along the gangplank. Mm-hmm. Uh, oh, yeah, and lovely, and I, lovely shot pairing. Yep, and yeah, she's so good in this, and I imagine she got done, and she's like. Oh, that was uh, a challenging shoot. Let me see what my agent has sent me next. Oh, thank God, a comedy about potentially owning too much stuff. Possession? Uh, oh, no. <laughs> she's great. She's so uh, yeah, she's she's so good, and she, her her like her face is her face is so expressive. Like she she'll give you like ten percent of her panic button, and you're like. Okay, I'm feeling very uncomfortable. I understand you're and you're nervous, and it's making me nervous. And then she gives you thirty percent of the panic button. You're like, okay, so I should I should be very nervous. Okay, we got it. Like I love how they kind of pair her panic dreams with the blaseness of Harker. Um, like he's just he's even like he's like, oh yeah, we're gonna go over the mountains. It's gonna be cra-. he almost feels like a Herzog character. He's like, we're going over the mountains. It's gonna be crazy. Like, uh, man, there's gonna be real wolves. Real wolves are in the mountains, and she's just like, haha, yeah. You remember all the 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 nervous dreams I've been telling you about? Like, can we? Can we, can we maybe like not do the incredibly dangerous bullshit you're talking about? And he's like, well, no, I've got to go because that's my job. All right, bye, see ya. <laughs> Yeah, Harper yeah. sucks, but at least they give him something to do at the end of the movie. But like, I like that at the beginning of the movie, he's just sort of this like blase guy. I like when he's in the inn and he slams his hand on the table. He's like, he's like innkeeper, I need my meal. Yeah, well, that's that's a. I'm going to see Dracula. <laughs> oh, what? <laughs> I'm like, still gonna go. I gotta get assaulted in a castle. Another great, another great shot is when he's leaving and they're all saying goodbye and he's framed with the back half of the horse. So it's literally him and a horse's ass. For I like love that. Oh my God, I love that. Yeah, this, this, another thing we didn't talk about was humor. This movie's actually rather funny despite all of its world weariness and like pressing, crushing melancholy. It has moments of, of humor too, I think. Yeah, because Herzog, Herzog loves to revel in the um, in the absurdity of this. This is not um, ed- edgelord bullshit. This is this is him like genuinely trying to understand the murky depths of depression. And he's drawing a, a parallel between uh, Lucy and uh, Nosferatu that I've never really understood before, which is like Lucy feels anxious and depressed in a way that like Nosferatu also feels. But he has the, you know, the weariness of generations. She has the weariness of just an unfulfilling life and an unfulfilling marriage. Um, he, and uh, the way Herzog sort of like outlines in little little absurd moments, little absurd jokes um and the way people are sort of treating each other and behaving like even the ending the ending is pretty fucking funny like the when when uh, <laughs> jonathan can't get out of the little yeah. uh, consecrated host circle yeah but that noise he makes when he does though he's like yoink <laughs> he does he makes a little he makes a little happy boy noise <laughs> yep like a cartoon character <laughs> and she looks at him and he's like whoa, whoa, whoa. <laughs> get my horse <laughs> <laughs> Uh, I love the scene. I love when he's like arrest Van Helsing, and at that point you've kind of given up on caring about any characters because Lucy's dead, Jonathan's a vampire, the whole deal. Um, and uh, you, uh, I love, I love it. He's just like, uh, yeah, like there's no uh, who's gonna arrest him? Some cops? Like where do I lock him up? There's no cops at the prison either. I, I, like what yeah, do you want me to do? They, and he's like, I don't know, just make him leave here. <laughs> yeah, they keep like drilling down for how other things could be cops. 
Like, all right, well, the guards, though. Well, there's no guards. Okay, well, oh, there's just no police? Yeah, I love I love how that because that that feeds into the themes of like pure societal collapse, like the the joke, the absurdity of people trying to maintain these uh these these, these standards of society in in times of pure collapse. Yeah, and it's absurdity, right? Like no cops in the middle of a pandemic. <laughs> Who would would think that's a good idea? <laughs> it's a joke. <laughs> well, it's in case, also- case you've never heard it, sorry, I'm all <laughs> Ever say about anything? That's a it's a big goof around from Aaron and Pete. Love, love to hear the old goofing arounds, even in times yeah. of pandemic, you know? <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, pandemic and ideally no cops, which this movie has somehow achieved. Yeah. Defunded the police. We have not been able to do that quite yet. Yeah. Can we talk about Kinski real quickly before the end? And then we can go to final thoughts, like Kinski in the role. Um, what do we think about the fact that he's, he's so gentle and like, what do you think about, all right, you know, actually, I don't even, we already talked about that. What do we think about the fucking teeth? I want, I, we haven't talked about that because the movie is kind of grounded in a weird way. Like it is dreamy, like Lucy, Lucy on the beach and the fog is dreamy, but like the movie's also kind of grounded. Like you see some guy with like sharp pointy front bat teeth. All of a sudden you like, yeah, that's a, that's a vampire. What do I, <laughs> what do I stab you? It's pre orthodontics. Yeah. I was going to say, does everyone just have shitty teeth in this era and, and, uh, and it would blend in more. <laughs> I don't know. I guess I just took it uh, again, like Herzog's, you know, homage to Murnau and also his like, because it is it's both dreamy and grounded, like you say, and he doesn't really care that like the notion of a plot hole doesn't exist in Herzog because he would just be like, well, that's how the movie goes. And you're like, okay, well, it doesn't make sense. He's like, then that's then you're not understanding because that's the movie. Didn't you just see what I did? It's there. <laughs> so it's like, you know, okay, well, they I have, could also that- see Herz- Herzog such a weirdo that he could be like the most terrifying things about <laughs> vampires is uh is is their teeth because teeth are essentially human bones and bones are traditionally on the inside. Except your teeth that jut out of your face in like a violent act to mm-hmm. rid itself of the humans that it's supposed to remain locked up in. Red uh, red in tooth and claw. Yeah. And vampires have bigger ones. <laughs> yeah, I think I think there's probably something there where like like uh I think Herzog was so connecting with the image of the bat. Mm-hmm. That he was, he was like, well, yeah, he's a, he's a, he's a Batman. He's the Batman. He, and like, he's like, he's like, hold on, I have another idea for him. <laughs> <laughs> it's like, he's like, uh, what do you mean, caped crusader? <laughs> do you guys think? Do you think uh, Kinski would have made a good Batman? Yeah. <laughs> I mean, it would have been ninety minutes of Batman aimlessly wandering around the streets looking for people to punch, <laughs> screaming. So essentially, Tim, so essentially, Tim Burton's Batman. <laughs> Batman does not scream enough. I love the idea of like the Batman scene where he's like, I'm Batman! You're the Joker! Like, 
And you're telling me you're going to commit crime and might like just running around screaming at all the bad guys until eventually they just tire out essentially and are like, whatever, Batman. Klaus Kinski. killing people. I feel like that's the only the only thing that can make up for the fact that we all had to deal with the fucking Joker bullshit last year. Like is is giving Herzog whatever superhero property he wants and letting him do whatever he wants for fifty million dollars. Like just just letting him run, just letting him run fucking rampant uh, with with a with whatever script he wants. Like that is our that's that's evening the the cosmic balance for us. His Superman movie is just Superman barreling into the sun of the earth to see if he can survive at the core for two hours. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, but yeah, we should we should get to final we should get to final. Yeah, thoughts, yeah. Probably most of this is gonna get cut out. <laughs> I do not know what you mean, cut out. <laughs> Everything I film ends up in my movie. Yeah, what do you think? Uh, Herzog thinks of Dogma ninety five. <laughs> oh my god, he would he he fucking hates it, right? Yeah, absolutely. I assume. I assume. Uh, yeah, so uh, I can do final thoughts because I'll probably be relatively brief. Just in that, like. Uh, I remember finding out that Herzog made uh, – I, I saw Nosferatu, the original one. I think we probably talked about this in the episode in like uh, – in early college. It was um, – I, I took a silent film course at my college and uh, they, they showed Nosferatu and I loved it. Um, and I hadn't revisited it since then. But finding out that Herzog had made a remake of no- – like I'd never even heard of this movie. It just – you know, it was easy to miss movies that weren't on the right list or – didn't show up in video stores in whatever city I lived in. And this didn't really show up on best of lists. I think it eventually did make it to Roger Ebert's great movies, like a, a couple other Herzog movies. But, uh, and it, it, there wasn't a tape that I was aware of at the, any of the video stores I went to. So the movie was, might as well have not existed for, uh, for me until I, uh, yeah, read about it when I was trying to get into more Herzog movies. And I guess I I don't know what I was expecting. I wasn't expecting this. And you're right. Like for the first, I definitely saw the English version first. Um, and I guess for the first two acts, I was like, yeah, it's a color, well done remake of another very excellent vampire movie or retelling of Dracula. And then I just remember just feeling such like it's a movie for that last act that is just so melancholy, so uh, depressing, so bleak that like you like turn it off and go, well, I'm going to stare at the wall for 20 minutes before I go do anything else. Because like I, I can't even like quite get over that quickly. The just the general depressive nature of what I've just seen and then also kind of being blown away with um so many of the shots and the existential tread and the feeling of just complete hopelessness in a what is ostensibly a monster movie uh there's no triumph there's only depressed the uh depression everyone is either di- dead or dying and uh and so yeah it was just like nothing i'd ever seen and so even rewatching it like i enjoyed rewatching it it's a fantastic movie but at last night it was like well yeah, guess I'm gonna go to bed. <laughs> like, <laughs> you know, it's it's it, it feels like we like. I don't think this movie gets talked about in the same like breaths of what's a movie that's challenging to watch again. And I will say, like, in the same way that we talk about, I don't know why this is a movie I haven't thought about in, in or watched in 20 years. But like the, the all those lists that like Requiem for 
dreams on. Like, yeah. what's a great movie that you don't that's that's either hard or you have trouble watching again? And I rewatching this last night, I was like, yeah, this is one of those movies for me a little bit. Like, I'm I'll watch it again, but I need to give it a few years space just because of how it makes it me feel. Uh, at the at the end of it, minus of course the fact that uh, all cops have been abolished or killed. Here, here, uh, Rick. What do you got? Um, it's it's funny that uh, uh, you focus so much on the bleakness, Aaron, because it's definitely there. But I don't feel like that's what I'm left with the most. Or it maybe it's just because it's so in my like um, you know like uh, viewing DNA from having watched it a lot when I was younger. Was this the first? I'm not not trying to interrupt your final thoughts, but was this the first like vampire and or interpretation of Dracula movie that you saw? Yes, like your baseline. Yes, interesting. Yeah, and um, but what I guess what I watching it. I well, I'll say it this way: what I was always stuck with me were the images, um, primarily, and less than the story or the narrative. And rewatching it now, um. I feel like that holds really true. It's actually a lot more imagistic and anti-narrative than I remember. It, it borders on sort of like, I mean, experimental is a weird word to use, but like the long, like the, the two minute cloud sequence where he's sitting there looking up at the sky, the whole, the whole journey actually to the castle um, is just yeah. a wash in like really gorgeous nature imagery with yeah. uh, the Wagner playing and then, the, of course, the opening mummies. Like, there are these, like, snippets of um, just really – it's, like, things that have gotten into my my image bank or whatever that um, is what sticks with me. And one of my big complaints all the time about movies that I see these days is that I'm constantly supposed to remember plot turns – of so many things, and I just I don't have the time for people's stories anymore. I don't just I just don't give a shit. Like I want <laughs> I want like poet poetry and images. That's like what I'm looking for a lot. And this movie really delivers that. Maybe bleakly, and maybe if you think about it too much, it's like a little depressing. I could see that, but just to sort of watch the way these uh, images are constructed and then relate to each other. In basic filmmaking grammar, I you know it's I think it's I think it's a masterpiece. Yeah, I think that's I, I think that's actually leads me to my point, which is that I actually maybe I'm just always depressed. I don't know. Um, I I don't see this as a hard to watch movie. I actually like slip into uh, the 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 sadness of this film, the melancholy of it, very comfortably. Um, and and, and I let the sort of um, the the cosmic connection between um lucy and nosferatu guide me because the film pretty much starts with lucy having a terror dream and it ends with um perhaps nosferatu after having uh all of his dreams kind of quashed and after you know killing a lot of people on the way there riding off presumably to just find something else maybe that can kill him uh, to find something else that can make him feel better, anything. Like, I see the film very much as, as two people trying to connect, one of them a demon, but, um, <laughs> <laughs> um, and, and, uh, while I, that is clearly depressing, it's not a movie that actually fires off my, like, oh god, I, I, I need to go take care of myself triggers at all. Um, it, it's, it's a movie that I find it very comfortable, um, to sort of slip into. Um, 
And uh, one reason that I think it, it is uh, it is uh, so comfortable to slip into is because it doesn't have American production value, um, where uh, it's not heavily cut. Shots last a long time, as, as uh, Rick was referencing the cloud shot. Um, the sort of uh, um, comfortability as death creeps into this film really, uh, I think, really informs every shot in the film. Like, um, and the fact that, like, what would be in the big American version, a, a massive shot with a million cuts, the, the carriage driver just showing up magically to pick up, uh, pick up Jonathan Harker and take him to the castle after he's been working so hard. Mm-hmm. Um, it's just sort of, he's just walking along a path. You know, this could be any other insert shot of him traveling. Uh, and then all of a sudden the carriage driver pulls up, there's very little exchanged. And then Jonathan gets in the car- carriage, like, in an American movie, that would be like we'd see we'd hear the thunder of horses, and then like we'd hear like the you know the music cue would cue up with the thundering of the horses, and then we'd see a dark figure coming down the path, and then eventually it would come in, and then we have a close up of a shadowy figure standing. I'm basically just quoting the Coppola version, um, and mm-hmm. uh, we'd have all of that, but instead because it's this sort of like muted, very like almost like natural kind of, kind of presentation. The carriage just kind of pulls up and Jonathan's like, oh, well, you're going to help me. Can I was going to walk the rest of the way, but you're going to help me get where I'm going. Um, and uh, the sort of like, I, I'm going to use the term mundanity. And I don't mean that as an insult. I mean, I think that's the word mundane is sort of used as an insult very often because it, it implies boring. But the sort of like the sort of like calm, muted nature of the film, I I, I find weirdly comforting <laughs> for a movie that that actually does creep the shit out of me. The shot of of Nosferatu uh, coming down the hallway to finally assault Jonathan in 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 earnest and and perhaps infect him. Uh, I find I find that shot terrifying. I find a lot of the shots of Nosferatu wandering around this husk of a city terrifying and really creepy in a sort of uh, 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 subdermal way. Mm. But largely, I find the sort of milieu of the film comforting. I find that tasks he has to do also very depressing. Like, I got all my coffins. He doesn't look like he's having fun. Just looks like a process he has to do to sleep in his cursed dirt. Yeah, exactly. That's actually something that, like, in the original movie made me laugh. The original movie, which is this, like... He does it really fast. This, like, subconscious... Yeah, this, like, subconscious fever dream. Um, And and because of the way the the film is cranked, like, Nosferatu is like... Yeah, the frame rate is really fast. You could you could do that. It's, it's amazing. Uh, the strongest man in the world when it comes to coffins. <laughs> yeah, put these we, babies around. Can, can I can I ask before we leave? Everyone's now that you've watched this one again because I think our rankings are very close. What is your favorite adaptation of Dracula of all time? Did we rank Nosferatu? them? Did we previously rank them? Uh, in, in Bram Stoker's Dracula episode, and then you briefly discussed really liking this movie uh, in our We Love to Watch episode. I, four, the original Dra- I, th- I think it's this one. We've done. Yeah, we've covered three Dracula adaptations, which is kind of funny. funny. Sorry, we can cut out this Dracula movie. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, what are your yeah? What which which Dracula adaptation? Uh, you know, veiled or not? Uh, Blade you, two is your favorite. Blade two. Yeah, the the epi- the episode of Buffy the Vampire Slayer where Dracula shows up. Uh, the best one, Nosferatu in Venice, which Kinski did after this one. Have you guys seen that? 
No. No, I, I read about it, though. <laughs> like, they made a sequel in name only. Yeah. Uh, it's a disaster. You should watch it. It's on It's on uh, Tubi. You could watch it on Tubi <laughs> for free with commercials. That's what Tubi's for. Yeah, Tubi's, Tubi's for. Nosferatu in Venice. I watched it, actually, just the other week when we first were talking about this. Uh, um, I watched My Best Fiend. I would, If I'd known that this existed, I would have also snuck it in. <laughs> I a, think it, it didn't come up. I didn't bring it up because it's not worth bringing up until now. But yeah. I think from a so it's not my favorite vampire movie, but from a Dracula adaptation, I think this is the best one with the note that I have not seen Guy Madden's adaptation, which Oh, it's great. I know some people like <laughs> Yeah, it's great. Um this is definitely it for for me. Um Bram Stoker's Dracula is uh gorgeous and bonkers and a really wonderful film. But this one is just close to my heart, I guess. Yeah, I would he, probably go Murnau, Bram Stoker's Dracula, and then this one. There, I, I don't think my 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 actual choices have changed, but uh, I was curious if anyone had had shuffled their order at all. Oh, oh, I forgot about Dracan Dracula Dead and Loving It. That's actually number one. <laughs> <laughs> it's actually a terrible movie. So maybe the only Mel Brooks movie that I dislike. Yeah, so we uh, we're almost done with screamings. We'll go back to silent making it's the opposite of a scream make peter quick think it's up funny uh, now it's late and we're all tired uh, uh, <laughs> movie yeah we're gonna go back to movies to movies <laughs> after, regular after old. this um yeah. if i ran a video store there'd be two sections scream makes and movies <laughs> good fucking luck finding anything it's not that medical <laughs> oh, i love well you gotta love brick and mortar <laughs> Gotta support your local brick and mortar show. <laughs> uh, yeah, we got one more of these. We saved a big one. Maybe like the... I don't know if this is true. We'll probably talk about this last week, Peter. But I feel like this is the first horror remake that everyone went, huh. Well, that was way better. Like, the original's good, but like this is amazing. Um, but I don't know if that's true from the contemporary reviews. You just never know how these things fall. But I, I feel like this is a, a, a considered on all fronts to be like the classic horror remake. And that is 1978's Invasion of the Body Snatchers. And uh, we're, we're, we're guested by. We have a guest who's on it. His name's Morgan Rinnis. He's great. He's been on a few of these. Yeah, it's going to be Sounds so like fun. fun. Um, it would be a good it capper be. because that's one that probably everyone can agree uh, is, uh, if not better than the original, pretty goddamn close. It rules. What you, when so you, good. Rick, just just as a, a second opinion or third opinion, yeah, uh, like, would you agree? Like that feels like the first horror, like actual classic horror remake. Uh, I mean, I guess I'll go along with that. I can't think of what would be before it. I definitely think that's the go-to for when people talk about superior. Yeah, horror remakes, or or at least on par. That's usually the one. Yeah, it's before the fly. It's before the thing. It's before right. a lot of like the '80s ones that would really like, um, you know, continue this trend. Right. When people start going, oh, hey, some of those weren't that good. Did you guys know that? Uh, <laughs> we, we could we could do them again. Yeah. So that'll be fun. In the meantime, uh, life is pain. I can't get out of this podcast. Gonna keep, gonna keep doing the same futile <laughs> things for all of eternity. So, a long sigh. <laughs> <sighs> okay. Good night. See ya.
tripping with me. Thank you so much for listening to We Love to Watch. If you made it to the end, hopefully you liked what you heard today. And if you'd like to hear more, please go to patreon.com slash we love to watch. And if you can chip in a few bucks, that would really help us keep the lights on and keep us moving forward. Uh, it wasn't an implicit threat by Peter. He just didn't know how to say it. But either way, we'll continue to make more. But it would be helpful uh, as we explain to our loved ones where all our money is going, which is all on server space. Uh, <laughs> if you can't, <laughs> uh, if you don't have a few bucks to chip in, we totally understand. And you want to support the show. We truly, absolutely would appreciate a uh, review on iTunes. I know every podcast says it, and it's because it really does help. And so every podcast wants that help. So please go leave us a positive review so that when people find this show organically, they hopefully want to tune in and listen. And thanks again for all of your listenership and support and time throughout the years. Uh, We really do appreciate you. Uh, With kisses and smooches, Peter and Aaron. (laughs) Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs>